Hello, and welcome to the Nutcast Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Benedictish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 132nd episode of the Nauticast titled, Smoke on the Water, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Sansa 4 in which everything is on fire and all Sansa wants is someone trustworthy to talk to. But instead, she's got Dantos, Sander, and Cersei. Oh, in case all this shit wasn't enough, she also just got her first period. This is just not Sansa's day. But I'm trying to think of when Sansa's day is, and, and that just doesn't happen either. Oh, poor Sansa. You know, the Elaine one from The Winds of Winter, where she's planning the tourney and she's having a really good time? All things that is considered? Sansa's one day, and it's not even technically canon yet. God bless you, Sansa. You're going to be okay, ultimately, we think. So, <laughs> as always, this episode is brought to you by our not-a-small-council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Timbob, troubleshooter of systems and designer of circuit boards. Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N. Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves. Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas. Wielder of the Valyrian Steel, Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones. Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers. Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Archmaster June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes. Ragged Michael, Ward of the North. Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone. Scarlet, the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, Ward of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bainford, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest. Lord Jacob Sister, to the Head of the King, Lady Zena Valyria, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Worthy East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anamas, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Low Energy Gent, the True Master of the Bainfort and True Master of Coin, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's Favorite Stain and Bastard of Chromatica, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Thems, Haldover, the Waiter for Tiwau, A.A. Braun, Damp Hair, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crow's Eye, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the First for Dame, Prince Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwork, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion, the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall, Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea. Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King and Horror of Harrenhal. Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lord Jean, the Splendid, Master of Coin, Ward of Tampa Bay. Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Boneway. Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden. Lord Paramount of the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, Warrior of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Squid Pro Quo, Master of Source, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State. Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance. Squire, Matt S. Future, Matt S., the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall. Lord Kyle, and our newest member of the Small Council. Everyone give a warm welcome to Lord Samuel Seaworth. Thank you to all of our also, thank you to all of our not a small councils and welcome to Lord Samuel Seaworth. To all our counselors as always, and a special welcome to Lord Samuel. Always happy to have another member of the Seaworth family. 
Absolutely. And I love the alliteration too. Samuel Seaworth, it just kind of flows off the tongue. Very pleasing. Absolutely. So as always, our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' Devellas histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Mystery Knight, a Kingsguard patron, who asks, Hi guys, I've decided your reread of A Song of Ice and Fire is worth supporting because you are one of the best. I'm very new in this fandom. I listened to Game of Thrones for the first time in January 2020 and fell in love. I watched all the eight seasons in less than two weeks, and now I am rereading the books with you. Emmett, you are so sweet, and I love the depth you give in your analysis of each chapter. And Jeff, dude, you are hilarious, and sweet, your heart is in the right place. Mm, Fact check on that. (laughs) I agree with you most of the time, not always, but that is only because I'm totally biased towards some characters. But there is one thing I really want to know. Why do you hate Renly so much? And which one do you hate more, Sandra Clegane or Renly? (laughs) Well, I think one of those questions is easier to answer than others. But uh, what do you think, Jeff? Why do you hate Renly so much? And who who do you hate more, Sandra Clegane or Renly Baratheon? Take it away. So, so Renly, Renly Baratheon, right? Obviously, I, I hate him more than Sandra Clegane because I don't hate Sandra Clegane as, as, a, as a person, as a character. We're going to talk about him a lot in this episode, which is why this, this question ended up being featured for this specific episode, because he is a very big part of this chapter. It's a Sansa chapter, and it's in A Clash of Kings. 75% of the time, Sandra Clegane is going to be in this these chapters. And here we get his some of his most iconic lines in all of the series itself. Um, why do I hate Renly? I, I don't hate Renly. I think we talked about this when we did um, when we did the Catelyn's, Catelyn 4, and we talked about what it meant to have what have his death be and have his death occur in that chapter. And also like how George framed his death very tragically. I mean, I, I don't think Renly Baratheon is a good guy necessarily. He's a terrible guy. He's a usurper. He is the person that would had he succeeded in his quest, his moral quest, not his moral quest, in his self self obsessed quest to to claim the Iron Throne would have likely brought about more bloodshed for the realm. Not that there's enough being shed already, but I don't hate Renly because he's a he's a character in a story. One and hating characters in a story seems silly on one hand, but at this at the le- other level too. I guess I just don't, I guess, I, you know, honestly, I feel a lot, of, after we went through Renly so strongly for Catelyn 2, 3, and 4, and went back and talked about, about him for Davos 2, I tend to think that he's, his death at least is sympathetic, and I think his impact on characters like Loras and Brienne make him more sympathetic as the narrative proceeds forward. So I, I don't hate Renly, I just don't like him all that much and think that he has a fraudulently claim to the Iron Throne and would have likely done a lot of great evil for the realm. Thankfully, he was not able to do that great evil because he had a, he died peacefully in his sleep. Who did it? Anyways, why do you hate Renly so much, Emmett? And who do you hate more, Renly or Renly? Well, between those two, I guess I have to go with Renly. No, obviously, I've, I've you know, Sandor is, I think, a very rich literary character and Renly is more just there as an obstacle. But I think there's, a, you know, a lot of great imagery and really powerful writing associated with him. For, for me, one of the most salient facts is how young he is when he dies. And as I mentioned, when we were covering the Storm's End chapters, he basically feels almost like a generation below Stannis, even though technically mm. he's not. And, you know, obviously he's a full-blooded adult and is culturally, you know, even older in Westerosi more than he would be in our world. And, you know, just, you don't want to forgive a guy who's already in his 20s by saying he can change. But, you know, I, who knows what Renly would have been like if he'd been the one who had to kill Stannis and then took kick King's Landing and tried to evolve as a leader. I don't know if he would have tried or if it would have worked. But I think Renly embodies, you know, potential more than anything else. And, you know, that's that's exasperating in the sense that he's, like, still in the reach after months. And it's like, oh, so you're just in love with potentially being mm-hmm. the king to save the day more than you are in love with saving the day. 
But then again, you know, if he got to King's Landing, he'd be doing what Stannis is, is doing in this chapter, which, you know, <laughs> has Sansa terrified. So I don't, you know, I, I think Renly's ego makes him easy to poke fun at, but they're, they're, if there's malice in him, it's of a careless, unthinking kind, which I think is, is I think, harder to hate relative to this pure monstrosi- monstrosity of Gregor and Ramsay. And I do get why people, you know, hate Stannis at a level that they would never hate Renly, because what's wrong with Stannis seems deeper and, again, more kind of complex and meaty, and, and, and you flinch from it. With Renly, it's just like you roll your eyes and give you an idiot. Um... <laughs> So you, you hate him because he's doing it for nothing. You know, right. that's why I really don't like Renly. There's no motivation behind this other than look at me. Hmm. But by the same token, you know, there's nothing worse than that either. Right. And and I think you're right. There's nothing worse, I guess, than that. I mean, the, like becoming king for your own vanity. Is, it's is a really lot worse shallow, than- but it's not, you know, the worst motivation that we see. <laughs> Right. There's because we see we're going to run to we're not going to actually run into Joffrey in this chapter, but we are going to be he's going to be all around us throughout this chapter. So it's all oh, it's all good stuff. Um, I, I do think it's yeah. So anyways, Sandra Kilgain, though, he's you, you prefer him over Renly, I'm assuming. Is that is that the, the answer to the second question? Well, I do. But also, like I was saying, it's in part just because he sticks around. Like if Sandor died now, <laughs> he'd be like, like, oh, if he died at the Blackwater. You know, instead of just symbolically dying at the Blackwater, he'd be like, oh, what unrealized potential, we would say, versus staying around long enough to develop a relationship with Arya and then go on to the Quiet Isle, and that's just not there for Renly. So I certainly find more to value in Sandor, but I think that's just that's as much a product of story structure as the character themselves, if that makes sense. Agreed. I mean, Renly's not in very many chapters in all of the Song of Ice and Fire. I think he has an outsized influence on how we perceive him as fans because we have, you know... 15 years between the Dance of Dragons and the Winds of Winter to, to talk about such things. So it's all good. You know, Sandor, greater than sign, Renly, Frank, that should be enough to satisfy you, right? Right? But no, I don't think so. Such a hot take, but no, Frank will not be satisfied. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much uh, to the Mystery Knight for the question and your support. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here in the Not a Cast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, merch, and bonus episodes like our upcoming episode on the movie Kingdom of Heaven, both the glorious director's cut and the nonsense theatrical cut. (laughs) Our episode on it entitled The New World with Luke is Amazing of the People's History of the Old Republic podcast on to guest. So we're, we're really looking forward to that. I'm so excited about doing that and all the history that's in at the actual history is involved around that, but also like the the artistry that goes around around that movie because the director's cut is artistry and the uh, theatrical cut is pure unfiltered bullshit and it should be rejected and just shot into outer space forever and ever. Keep on flying past the solar system, sir. Anyways, yes, I cannot wait to unpack the unpack the movie with you and, and Luke both. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Sansa Stark, she had just barely survived the riot in King's Landing, having been having been saved by Sandor Clegane. Maybe she can thank him for saving her. Maybe. Let's find out what happens with Sansa in this synopsis of a clash of kings, Sansa Four. The southern sky was black with smoke. It rose, swirling off a hundred distant fires. Its sooty fingers smudging out the stars. Across the Blackwater Rush, a line of flames burned nightly from horizon to horizon, while on this side the imp had fired the whole riverfront, docks and warehouses, homes and brothels, everything outside the walls. 
Within the red keep, Sansa could taste the ash as she makes her way to the godswood. There, she finds Dantus Haller, who asks if she's been crying. She has. Totally the ash in the air, she lies. Dantus tells her that the reason there's ash is that Stannis is trying to smoke the mountain clansmen out of the Kingswood as they'd been killing Stannis' scouts and raiding his supplies. But enough war shit. Dantus Haller needs to do some good gossiping here. As a fool, he hears all sorts of things he's not supposed to hear. And Varys is paying. You see, Moonboy is Varys' agent and probably has been for years. He is drunk again. My poor Florian, he names himself, and so he is, but he is all I have. Is it true, Lord Stannis burned the gods with a storm's end? Not just not, he made a great pyre of the trees as an offering to his new god. The red priestess made him do it. They, they say she rules him now, body and soul. He's vowed to burn the great Sept of Baylor too if he takes the city. From a political standpoint, Tyrion's deception about Stannis is already paying propaganda dividends. I'll give him that at least. But Sansa thinks that it's fine if Stannis burns the great Sept of Baelor. It was where they murdered her father after all. When Dantos warns her that the gods might hear her, Sansa's like, no, the gods are not listening to her prayers. But Dantos counterpoints that the gods heard her, prayer, heard her prayers as they sent him to her. Is that an answer to the prayer? I don't know. Sansa picked at the bark of a tree. She felt lightheaded, almost feverish. They sent you, but, but what good have you done? You promised you would take me home, but I'm still here. Dantus patted her arm. I've spoken to a certain man. I, I know a good friend of me and you, my lady. You hire a swift ship to take us to safety when the time is right. Who could this certain man be? Or is it a man? Is it Quaithe? No, fuck Quaithe. Regardless, Sansa thinks that they need to get the hell out of Dodge before the battle begins as they've forgotten about her. But Dantos says they might make it out of the castle, but they never make it out of the city, given that the gates are guarded and the river is closed. Sansa realizes that this is true as the Blackwater was empty, save for war galleys going up and down the river, exchanging arrow fire with Stannis' archers on the south bank. As for Stannis, who is, by the way, the king, let's catch up with where he is and where his army is, shall we? Lord Stannis himself was still on the march, but his vanguard had appeared two nights ago during the Black of the Moon. King's Landing had woken to the sight of their tents and banners. They were 5,000, Sansa had heard, near as many as all the gold cloaks in the city. They flew the red or green apples of House Fossaway, the turtle of Estremont, and the fox and flowers of Florent, and their commander was Sir Gyard Morrigan, a famous southern knight who men now called Gyard the Green. His standard showed a crow in flight, its black wings spreading wide against a storm green sky. But it was the pale yellow banners that worried the city. Long ragged tails streamed behind them like flickering flames, and in place of a lord's sigil, they bore the device of a god, the burning heart of the Lord of Light. Sansa thinks that Stannis will have ten times the numbers as Joffrey has, but Dantos says that doesn't matter so long as they're south of the Blackwater. Sansa says Stannis has ships, dude. He's got lots of ships. He's going to cross. But Dantos thinks that the gods might send a storm to sweep Stannis' fleet from the sea. Anyhow, his friend will return and they'll take a ship from King's Landing. And in the original lyrics written by Fred Durst, you got to have faith <clears throat> in Sansa's Florid and don't be scared. But Sansa is afraid. And the nightmares from the ride in King's Landing had been a nightly occurrence. She could hear the people screaming at her, screaming without words like animals. They had hemmed her in and thrown filth at her and tried to pull her off her horse and would have done worse if the hound had not cut his way to her side. They had torn the high sept into pieces and smashed in Sir Aaron's head with the brock. Try not to be afraid, he said. The whole city was afraid. Sansa could see it from the castle walls. The small folk were hiding themselves behind closed shutters and barred doors and said that would keep them safe. The last time King's Landing had fallen, the Lannisters looted and raped as they pleased and put hundreds to the sword, even though the city had opened its gates. This time, the imp meant to fight, and a city that fought could expect no mercy at all. 
Dantos decides to do this old Dantos thing about how if he were a knight, he'd have to put armor on and man the walls. Maybe he should thank Joffrey for making him a fool. No, you fucking dumbass, Sansa thinks. Joffrey would make Dantos a knight again if he thanked the king for making him a fool. Dantos says that Sansa is clever, but Sansa retorts that Cersei and Joffrey say that she's a big dum-dum. <laughs> Sansa, I'm so sorry for all the mean things I said about you on Twitter back in 2016. You were very smart. Much love to you. But Dantos decides to reassure her by telling her that playing dumb is fine. No one will pay attention to you that way. Is that reassuring? I don't think so. He then stifles a burp and attempts creepiness. Gods preserve you, my little jonquil. He was growing weepy. The wine did that to him. Give your Florida a kiss now. A kiss for luck. He swayed toward her. Sansa dodged the wet, groping lips, kissed him lightly on an unshaven cheek, and bid him good night. It took all her strength not to weep. She had been weeping too much of late. It was unseemly, it was unseemly she knew, but she could not seem to help herself. The tears would come, sometimes over a trifle, and nothing she did could hold them back. It's really okay, Sansa. You've been through some traumatic shit. It's not trifling whatsoever. Sansa then walks back to Mager's Holdfast, using a drawbridge that was unguarded since all the knights and gold cloaks were involved in the city's defenses. Since the Red Keep was mostly empty, she basically had freedom of the castle and could go anywhere. But she didn't really want to go anywhere. Sansa makes it to the stairway and starts climbing, noticing how the smoke veiled the stars and moon. But from this vantage point, she could see the city all around her. The Red Keep, the city streets, the river, smoke and fires, fires everywhere. Soldiers moved across the city walls with torches in hand and catapults were down by the mud gate. Sansa thinks she shouldn't be afraid given all the city's defenses, but she can't shake that feeling of fear. A stab went through her so sharp that Sansa sobbed and clutched her belly. She might have fallen, but a shadow moved suddenly and strong fingers grabbed her arm and steadied her. She grabbed Merlin for support, her fingers scrabbling at this rough stone. Let me go, she cried. Let me go. The little bird thinks she has wings, does he? Or do you mean to end up a cripple like that brother of yours? Sansa twisted in his grasp. I wasn't going to fall. It was only you startled me, that's all. You mean I scared you and still do. Sansa takes a deep breath and realizes that it's Mr. Sander Clegane. Oh, yay. She looks away and Sander does that thing where he mocks her for not being able to look at his scars. But she was awful glad to see his burned face when the mob wasn't about, weren't you? Sansa did remember that time, how everyone was howling at her, the feel of the man's fingers as it grasped around her arm, his breath smelling like garlic. She figured she was about to die, but then the fingers twitched and the man was screaming and then laying on the ground with blood spurting out of the arm and out of the stump in his arm. Others were around, but then Santa Clegane leapt at them, sword in hand and painted with red as he laughed at everyone, his face somehow transforming for an instant, for just a moment. Sansa forced herself to do the courteous thing and look into Sander's face, and a lady must never forget her courtesies. The thing of it, though, was that the scars weren't the worst thing about his face. It was his eyes. They were so full of hate. Sansa said she should have come to Sander to thank him for saving her and being brave. But to Sander, he wasn't being brave. He chased off rats. And none of those rats dared to face him. And then we get some iconic dialogue and a song of ice and fire that I'm just going to read a fool because I practiced the voice. So I got to read it, right? <laughs> That's a bad reason. Anyways, Sansa hated the way he talked, always so harsh and angry. Does it give you joy to scare people? No. It gives me joy to kill people. His mouth twitched. Wrinkle up your face all you like, but spare me this false piety. You were a high lord's git. Don't tell me Lord Edward Stark of Winterfell never killed a man. That was his duty. He never liked it. Is that what he told you? <laughs> your father lied. Killing is the sweetest thing there is. Senator drew his longsword. Here's your truth. Your precious father found that on Baylor Seps, Lord of Winterfell, handed the king, ward of the north, the mighty Edward Stark of a line, 8,000 years old. Ellen Payne's blade went through his neck all the same, didn't it? Do you remember the dance he did when his head came off his shoulders? 
Sansa hugged herself, suddenly cold. Why are you always so hateful? I was thanking you. Just as if I was one of your true knights you love so well, yes. What do you think a knight is for, girl? You think it's all about taking favors from ladies and looking fine in gold plate? Knights are for killing. He laid the edge of his long sword against her neck just under her, under her ear. Sansa could feel the sharpness of the steel. I killed my first man at twelve. I've lost count of how many I've killed since then. High lords with old names, rich fat men dressed in velvet, knights puffed up like bladders with their honors. Yes, and women and children too. They're all meat, and I'm the butcher. Let them have their lands and their gods and their gold. Let them have their sirs. Sandercleane spat at her feet to show what he thought of that. So long as I have this, he, he said, lifting the sword from her throat. There's no man on earth I need fear. But Sansa, who, by the way, is smart, thinks that Sander is afraid of someone, namely his brother Gregor. She thinks he's a wild bean dog that bites. Sansa asks if he's afraid of Stannis' men south of the Blackwater. Asks that, well, you know, Sander's a big, brave boy. He's only, you know, just, just not fond of the fire. That's, cowards. That's a coward's weapon. When Sansa retorts that Stannis isn't a coward, Sander argues back that Stannis isn't Robert either. Robert wouldn't let a river stop him. What will you do when he crosses, Sansa asks. Fight, kill, die, maybe. Aren't you afraid? The, the gods might send you down to some terrible hell for all the evil you've done. What evil, he laughed. What gods? The gods who made us all, Sansa replied. And then, Sandra Clegane, YouTube atheist, starts vigorously tipping his fedora at the thought that the gods don't exist because then why is there human suffering and physical deformities? The gods, if they exist, are only in it to make sure that the weak exist for the strong to prey upon. But Sansa, who is brave, by the way, says that the true knights protect the weak. Sander snorted, there are no true knights, no more than there are gods. If you can't protect yourself, die and get out of the way of those who can. Sharp steel and strong arms rule this world. Don't ever believe any different. Sansa backed away from him. You're awful. I'm honest. It's the world that's awful. Now fly away, little bird. I'm sick of you peeping at me. Wordless, Sansa fled. She was afraid of Sander Clegane, and yet some part of her wished that Sir Dantos had a little of the hound's ferocity. There are gods, she told herself, and there are true knights too. All the stories can't be lies. Eat. All the stories can't be lies. Just the summation of Sansa's thematic arc and all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Ah, beautiful. That night, Sansa dreams of the riot and the faces screaming at her. She cries, begging the inhuman monster faces not to drag her away, but no one cares. She shouts for anyone who might help. Dantos, her brothers, Lady, the direwolf, Ned, but no one comes. Not even the storied heroes of song like Florian, Ryan Redwine, and Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight. No one responds. Sansa feels women swarming over her, pinching her legs, kicking her stomach. Someone hits her face, her teeth shatter, and then she sees a steel knife plunging into her stomach and it tears and tears and tears until her body is bloody ribbons. When she woke, the pale light of morning was slanting through her window, yet she felt as sick and achy as if she had not slept at all. There was something sticky on her thighs. When she drew back the blanket and saw the blood, all she could think was that her dream had somehow come true. She remembered the knives twisting inside of her, twisting and ripping. She squirmed away in horror, kicked at the sheets, then falling on the floor, breathing raggedly, naked, bloodied, and afraid. But as she crouched there on her hands and knees, understanding came. No, please, Sansa whispered. Please, no. She didn't want this happening to her. Not now, not now, not now, not now, not now, not now, not now. Sansa feels a madness overtaking her, and she pulls herself up, washes between her legs, but then the water turns pink from the blood. She knows the maids would know, but then she remembers her bedclothes, rushes back to the bed, and finds the sheets red with a dark stain. She knows that she has to get rid of the sheets, or they'd force her to marry Joffrey. So she gets a knife, hacks the sheets off, cuts out the stain, and realizes they would know that something is amiss. So she tears off all the sheets and tries burning them in the fireplace. But then she realizes that the blood had gone into the bed, too. So she tries bundling up the bed to stuff into the fire. But then a maid bursts through the door and gasps. 
In the end, it took three of them to pull her away, and it was all for nothing. The bedclothes were burnt, but by the time they carried her off, her thighs were bloody again. It was as if her own body had betrayed her to Joffrey, unfurling a banner of Lancer Crimson for all the world to see, which is just such a sad line. When the fire is put out, they carry the bed away and bring and bring a tub for Sansa. They wash her in scalding water, pull, put her into new clothes, give her a cloth for a period, and usher her into an audience with a Cersei who is eating breakfast. Cersei asks if Sansa is hungry, but Sansa is still feeling sick to her stomach, and she declines. Cersei doesn't blame Sansa for feeling sick, with all the Tyrion and Stannis setting everything on fire chicanery about, chicanery about but why Sansa, did you burn the bed again? Sansa lies and says that the blood scared her, but Cersei responds about getting her first period is the, quote, seal of seal of Sansa's womanhood. Why didn't Catelyn prepare Sansa for this, Cersei asks? Well, she did, according to Sansa, but she thought it would be different, less messy, and more magical. Queen Cersei laughed. Wait till you birth a child, Sansa. A woman's life is nine parts mess to one part magic. You will learn that soon enough, and the parts that look like magic often turn out to be the messiest of all. She took a sip of milk. So now you were a woman. Do you have the least idea of what this means? It means that I am now fit to be wedded and bedded, said Sansa, and to bear children for the king. The queen gave her a wry smile. A prospect that no longer entices you as it once did, I can see. I will not fault you for that. Joffrey has always been difficult, even his birth. I labored for a day and a half to bring him forth. You cannot imagine the pain, Sansa. I screamed so loudly that I fancied Robert might hear me in the king's wood. Surprise, Sansa asked whether Robert was with her when she was giving birth. He was not. He was out hunting, and when Robert would return, he'd always give Cersei a pelt or a stag's head, and she would return the favor by giving him a baby. Still, Cersei didn't want Robert there anyways. Pycelle and her midwives were there, and also Jamie. He was there too. Weird, that. Refusing not to be allowed into the birthing room. Sadly, Sansa won't find that kind of devotion from Joffrey, as the boy blames Sansa for what Arya and her direwolf did to him on the trident. That's why Joffrey shames her. But in Cersei's perhaps most human moment, she tells Sansa that she's stronger than that and she'll survive humiliation. Cersei did anyhow. You may never love the king, Cersei said, but you'll love his children. I love his grace with all my heart, Sansa said at once. The queen sighed. You had best learn some new lies. And quickly, Lord Stannis will not like that one, I promise you. Sansa responds that the High Septon is reporting that, Sansa, that Stannis will not win since Joffrey is the rightful king, and this, this causes Cersei to practically bite off the lower part of her face to keep from laughing. She tells Sansa that Joff is so totally Robert's trueborn son and heir, but it's so weird. You know, Joffrey would always cry when Robert picked him up, unlike all of the bastards who would smile and gurgle up at their father. Wink, wink. Robert wanted, Robert wanted smiles and cheers always, so he went and where he found them to his friends and his horrors. Robert wanted to be loved. My brother Tyrion has the same disease. Do you want to be loved, Sansa? Everyone wants to be loved, Sansa replied. I see flowering hasn't made you any brighter, said Cersei. Sansa, permit me to share a bit of womanly wisdom, wisdom with you on this special day. Love is poison. A sweet poison, yes but it will kill you all the same. And that is A Clash of Kings, Sansa 4. This chapter, man, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic chapter for many different reasons. And I think it's made really well by Sansa being the point of view for the events of Stannis' arrival and all the things that are happening to her as a character. What did you think of this chapter, sir? Sansa's chapters in the book so far have been beautifully written and attended well to her character arc. However, there haven't been very many of them, fewer than any POV in the book other than Davos, 
and by necessity she's been overshadowed by Tyrion, who occupies the same setting and gets more attention as the book's protagonist. Yet by the end of A Clash of Kings, Sansa will have more chapters than Bran, or Danny, or Theon, or Catelyn, and as many as Jon. George focuses more on Sansa during this climactic stretch of A Clash of Kings than anyone else. Despite being a non-combatant, she is the primary lens through which we see the Battle of Blackwater, arguably more than Tyrion and certainly more than Davos. It's an interesting choice on George's part and one we will be exploring for the rest of the book. Sansa IV is our introduction to this important part of her story, and it sets the fiery and feverish tone perfectly. This chapter refamiliarizes us with Sansa as a POV, because it's been a while, through the lens of her first period, but also finds her in negotiating her context through dense dialogue scenes with Dantos, Cersei, and above all, Sandor Clegane, literally looming over her as a figure of both fear and freedom. By the end of Sansa 4, the reader is prepared to see the biggest battle of the series, so far, through her <laughs> eyes. Not until we get to the Battle of Fire, I think you're absolutely right. You know, George hasn't really dwelled on the aftermath of the Riot of King's Landing all that much, which is really interesting. Because in the preceding two Tyrion chapters, Tyrion is just so fucking busy that he barely considers that he and the entire royal family nearly got their asses killed by the small folk. And this makes this particular Sansa chapter really compelling because Sansa isn't so busy. She doesn't have the affairs of state to keep her mind off the trauma she just experienced. As she thinks about this in this chapter, Sansa was mostly left alone in the Red Keep with only her thoughts to keep her company. And that's why Sansa can't shake her traumatic memories consciously or in her subconscious when she dreams. She's been living a nightmare within the Red Keep, memories and dreams of her father's murder, her near brush with rape and murder in King's Landing, and the threat of burying Joffrey hanging above her. That threat only grows more immediate by chapter's end. It's a terrifying spectacle for Sansa, and it's to her credit that she keeps on hoping that trusting Danto somehow pays off, even as the prospects of that gamble appear more and more remote with Stannis, who, by the way, is the king, and war approaching the city. Yes, the major plot event of Sansa IV is the first contact made between the Lannister and Baratheon forces in the build-up to the Battle of Blackwater. Stannis's vanguard has arrived, setting up shop on the other side of the river and trading arrows with Lannister ships, holding the river against them. They are led by Guillard Morrigan, formerly Guillard the Green of Renly's Rainbow Guard. Sansa describes his green banner and the colorful banners of his followers like the imagery and the stories she used to love. But it's one banner in particular gripping the city with fear, the fiery banner of R'hllor. Its yellow-orange trails like flames consuming Stannis' red heart. George juxtaposes this banner with the literal fires raging on both sides of the water, as if to suggest that fire itself is a combatant in the war. One that does not truly serve Stannis, but preys on all sides, including civilians. Fire in this chapter embodies dread, a promise of violence to come, leaving Sansa and the city as a whole feeling powerless to escape. Across the river waits Stannis's fury, given form by Melisandre and her red god. His men are burning their way through the Kingswood. What happens when they get inside the city? How many fires will they light? On this side of the Blackwater, Tyrion has sent the riverfront, riverfront ablaze, and it's his men who started the fires in the Kingswood to deny Stannis resources. 
Right, it's that payoff from the last Tyrion chapter where he orders Bronn to burn all of the the suburbs of of King's Landing south of of the the walls of King's Landing to uh, that are up on the board, north bank of the of the Blackwater. And I think also too, like here, it feels like George is engaging in some return of the king pastiche, particularly with the Battle of Minas Tirith, particularly to get even more particular with the lead up to that battle in the form of the preceding Battle of Osgiliath. There, orcs and orc-aligned humans take the eastern bank of Osgiliath from Gondor and then launch an assault on the west bank with their vanguard, driving Faramir and his small army out of the city while awaiting Corsair ships sailing with reinforcements. Does this sound familiar? It should, because George redresses the lead-up to his battle, namely the Blackwater, with Sir Gyard Morgan playing the role of the orc vanguard and fighting to clear out the southern bank of the Blackwater Rush as Tyrion's mountain clansmen are wreaking havoc in Stannis' lines. That line of thought leads to a rather uncomfortable direction for us here in the Not a Cast podcast. Does this make Stannis the Dark Lord Sauron figure hailing from the Volcano Castle up for our upcoming Battle of the Blackwater? What I'm saying is that at least the optics match, right? I mean, you can't deny that George is drawing some inspiration from Tolkien here. And we have been talking about Stannis occupying the antagonist role to Tyrion's protagonist role in King's Landing. But... In George's more ambiguous world, the face value optics are not necessarily the objective truth here. Stannis has all of the optics of the Dark Lord, but not all of the personality traits of Sauron. As we see in from an earlier Catelyn chapter, was it that Stannis says to Catelyn Stark as they're standing there? He says, ah, if I take King's Landing, I will return your daughters to you. And Catelyn thinks, alive or dead, his tone seemed to imply. So there is something a little bit non-Sauron about Stannis. I think, don't think that Stannis is necessarily Sauron here. And I think in, in George's world, again, the face value optics are not necessarily objective truth. As he talked about Tolkien, George said, I admire Tolkien greatly. His books had enormous influence on me. And the trope that he sort of established the idea of the Dark Lord and his evil minions in the, in the hands of less writers over the years and decades has not served the genre well. It has been beaten to death. The battle of good and evil is a great subject for any book and certainly for a fantasy book. But I think ultimately the battle between good and evil is weighed within the individual human heart and not necessarily between an army of people dressed in white and an army of people dressed in black. When I look at the world, I see that most real living, breathing human beings are gray. And this is not to say that there are no distinctions to be made, nor that no one on either side has any good reason to be doing what they're doing. Stannis and Tyrion are following their incentives. Yet when you filter those incentives through the power structure of Westeros and their own specific emotional damage, what you get is a race to see who can burn it all down first. As Sansa thinks, the city suffered immensely during the last war, and that was when they opened their gates. This time Tyrion means to fight, and the city that fights can expect no mercy at all. It is not one side, nor the other, that has wholly created this situation for the city, but the combination of both. Sansa offers us the perspective of someone who feels trapped between these two fires, forced to wait to see which side burns her first. Sansa is not exactly a commoner, of course. This chapter reminds us of that with her dream about the King's Landing riot back in Tyrion 9. She does, however, give us a sense of the war not as a partisan conflict, but rather an all-consuming nightmare emerging from the elements. The smoke is blotting out the stars. Even within the Red Keep, the air tastes of ash. Death, decay, corruption. They follow the fires into the city to claim us. And the battle proper hasn't even begun. What's more hellish than waiting to die? Even death itself seems preferable to this extended agony beforehand. The political backstory and military strategies fall away, leaving a more existential and free-floating sense of doom as a deliverance of the gods. 
People talk about Sansa as a passive character, but not every arc has to subscribe to the screenwriting 101 rules of empowerment through action. (laughs) Sansa's struggle at this point is about powerlessness, about the inability to affect one's situation. What does it feel like when all you can do is watch? Part of her problem is that it's just not clear where the greatest threat is coming from, nor is it clear exactly where her potential deliverance may lie. Will Stannis' arrival cue her liberation from the Lannisters, or her death in the sack? Will Dantos free her or keep her pinned in place? What about Sandor? Since we don't have a POV directly among the people of King's Landing, Sansa is our way into their desperate sense that there is no exit. She will sing among them in her next chapter, a sense of destinies aligning and asserting their brief existence before those fires close in. Sansa is not the protagonist of the Battle of Blackwater in direct plot action terms, that would be Tyrion, but she is the keeper of the flame in terms of what it all means, emotionally, spiritually, and that's equally important. And much like George has talked about how he wrote Catelyn as a take on charting an uncharted topic in fantasy, namely to write about King Arthur's mom, George is going to take a different approach to the Battle of the Blackwater. I mean, we're going to hear from Davos and Tyrion for the actual war fighting. But as you were saying in your opening comments, Sansa is the primary point of view for the battle as she allows George to explore the effects of war on non-combatants, specifically on women. For women, children, and other non-combatants, war isn't, quote, politics by another means, not some Clausewitzian grand game of strategy and tactics. It's literally the difference between life and death. And this is why Sansa is a crucial point of view for this battle. She's not non-partisan. She would much rather that Stannis runs Joffrey through with Lightbringer and tosses Joffrey's new-made sword into the river, she talks about in the next chapter. But she knows that Stannis hasn't come to liberate King's Landing or her from captivity. As you'll think about in her next chapter, for what was Stannis Baratheon if not the stranger come to judge them? But beyond Stannis, Sansa is well aware that the people of King's Landing, the people who again who have played really no part in the war, will be targeted by the soldiers under Stannis' command. There are quite a few people in Stannis' army who would who wouldn't bulk at murder and rape. There's a lot of Godfrey Farings and Clayton Suggs in this army. It's a little disturbing. But there are also a lot of regular soldiers in Stannis' army too, men who are maybe not so brutal and evil as Godfrey Farings or Clayton Suggs. What I'm saying is that there's a lot of folks like Steelshanks Waltons in, in Stannis' army. And what does Jamie think about Steelshanks Walton and his storm of swords? Steelshanks Walton commanded Jamie's escort, blunt, brusque, and brutal, at heart a simple soldier. Jamie had served with this sword all his life. Men like Walton would kill at their lord's command, rape when their blood was up after battle, and plunder wherever they could. Now, Stannis may be anti-rape and anti-murder, mostly, and he may punish his soldiers after the fact, as we discussed in Theon 4, but that doesn't stop the rapes and murders from occurring in the first place. And Sansa knows this, and she might know it subconsciously right now, but Cersei will make it explicit in two Sansa chapters from now. If I am not betrayed by my own guards, I may be able to hold here for a time. Then I could go to the walls and offer to yield it to Lord Stannis in person. That will spare us the worst, but if Magor's holdfast should fall before Stannis can come up, why then most of my guests are in for a bit of rape, I'd say. And you should never rule out mutilation, torture, and murder at times like these. Sansa is facing down both possibilities and pitfalls. The opportunity of escape contrasted with the threat of death. This duality is embodied by her two potential guardians, her two not-a-knights, Dantos Hollard and Sandor Clegane. Sansa 4 has a similar structure to Sansa 2, in which Dantos puts forward a thesis and Sandor counters with an antithesis. 
Their dialogue touches on all the themes and images that define Sansa's story, and she must engage with their arguments in order to arrive at her own truth. Sansa's conversation with Dantos in this chapter starts with him asking if she's been crying. She lies and says it's only the smoke messing with her. Right away we see the image of the noble lady, whose job it is to be beautiful and serene, contrasted with the raw emotions behind the surface. Just as Jane Poole's tears disturb the fragile peace of Winterfell in A Dance with Dragons, Sansa's private tears do not line up with her enforced public role. Men like Joffrey cannot abide the wailing of women, who are permitted emotional displays only in grief for the men they have lost, and Sansa doesn't even get to do that because the men she loves are traitors. Sansa has internalized this role so deeply that she lies to Dantos, even though they're in private, even though he probably wouldn't judge her for it. This is the liminal in-between space in which Sansa is caught. She knows enough to realize that her public role is a trap, not a dream come true, yet she can't find another role to play. This is in part because she's a prisoner of a sadistic king and a hateful queen who do not care about her sense of alienation, but it's also because she was never taught another role in the first place. So we find Sansa struggling to bridge the gap, to use the tools she has to make sense of a world that those tools did not prepare her to handle. That's a really fantastic insight, both as literary analysis and also getting at the heart of Sansa's, char- Sansa's character arc post Ned Stark's murder. I mean, Sansa was always intended by Ned and Catelyn to play the role of consort to a great lord or even a royal, and she was groomed to adhere to gender norms and practice courtesy expected of a highborn lady. And in a gentler time, this may have resulted in some happiness for Sansa. I mean, consider how Catelyn's life isn't so bad as Lady Stark and running the Stark household at Winterfell. But these are obviously different times, and Sansa's training as a high lady or queen is running up against the hard constraint of Joffrey and Cersei and all of their fucking enablers. The irony is that Sansa's training is also what keeps her alive. She refashions her courtesy into dishonesty to Dantos, to Sander, to Cersei, and eventually to Littlefinger and the Lord's Declarant, all to stay breathing. And that struggle is reflected back at her by Dantos. He was playing the role of a knight before and failed miserably at it. Now he's a fool and prefers it, but if he ever let Joffrey find that out, he'd be forced to be a knight again. Dantos claims that, ironically, he's more knightly than ever now that his official knighthood has been taken away from him. He has lost the surface but found the substance, allowing him to embody Florian the Fool from the songs. I was a foolish knight. I find redemption in being your knightly fool. That's what he says, anyway. Through Sansa's eyes, we realize that Dantos's arc has not been quite that clean. His alcoholism is a constant. We can guess that Dantos turned to booze to drown the trauma and anger from the Mad King wiping out his family, and that's that's sympathetic and relatable. Dantos, however, is not our POV. Sansa is. And from Sansa's POV, Dantos' alcoholism contributes to him being disappointing, unreliable, and creepy. She has to endure his whiny breath as he gropes towards her for a kiss. She watches him sway and ramble, wondering if she can count on him. There are multiple layers of fantasy and reality at work here. Dantos is a fool on the outside, but a knight on the inside, or so he says. Yet George suggests that his knight identity is just another performance, a mask. His bright, multicolored fool's garb is covered in wine stains. The innocent fun of childhood literally stained by the trials and tumults of adulthood. Dantos' status as a fool, an identity he literally and figuratively wears, is what allows him to act as a spy. As he tells Sansa in the viper's nest of royal politics, it's actually good 
to be dismissed and despised. That way, he says, they won't take you seriously. And they only threaten those they take seriously, ignoring everyone else. He's such an effective spy because no one thinks about him enough to get suspicious of him. This is true to an extent. (laughs) Dantos has a point that keeping your head down is a good way to survive, and also definitely the best way to function as a spy. Littlefinger doesn't take Sansa seriously, and this will be his downfall because, really, he's just giving her too much information. But keeping your head down isn't a guarantee of safety. Look at Sansa's story in A Clash of Kings so far. Dantos is only alive because she refused to keep her head down. Yet she escaped punishment for defying Joffrey, precisely because Sandor stuck his neck out for her as she had done for Dantos. It was kind of like a a chain reaction of decency there. Hmm. What did Joffrey actually hurt her for? Rob's victory at Oxcross, something over which she had no power. Keeping her head down didn't help her then. Neither did Dantos' antics as a fool. Joffrey had the power and she had none. Same logic applies during the Battle of Blackwater. Sansa's passivity doesn't save her from potential execution by Ilan Payne, and when she does take charge of things at Magor's and then runs away, she doesn't suffer for it. There is no silver bullet to surviving this situation. No hard and fast rule Sansa can use to navigate the labyrinth of power. And she knows it. Yeah, and as we've been talking about in previous Sansa chapters, part of George's character development for Sansa is for her to take off the rose-colored glasses and step into adulthood, which happens quite literally in this chapter. Sansa is learning how to navigate her words to stay alive, but there's still no telling who Sansa will encounter by the day, or what Joffrey's mood might be, or what other plot event will endanger her, like the Battle of Oxcross. Overall, the lesson, is, as you were saying, is that there's no silver bullet to parry a blow away, but using one particular defense every time won't save her either. Subtextually, though, Sansa is learning when to stand up for herself, when to appear passive, and how to use a mix of both of these strategies. That she does this in a position of powerlessness is a really great touch on George's part and parallels a bit of what George is doing with Bran as the Stark in Winterfell before Theon interrupted by stumblefucking his way into Winterfell. Sansa has not been born in the purple and hasn't had a maester to train her in the political arts, at least since she left Winterfell. But she's learning all the same. Unfortunately, she's learning at the hands of a massive amount of abuse she's suffering, and I would not want to make the mistake the show made by having Sansa say that her abuse has made her wiser. Oh my god, fuck that. It's rather to say in the words of a 2013 National Center for Biotechnical Information white paper, which I, of course, read just the synopsis of, the experience of childhood trauma increases a person's ability to take the perspective of another and to understand their mental and emotional states, and that this impact is longstanding. Sansa is what I'm what I'm saying essentially is that Sansa is subconsciously learning strategies by having to be a little bird in King's Landing and sometimes a Stark of Winterfell too. She's becoming empathetic too, which is a trait necessary for her future rule of the North come the end of the series. Dantos is speaking the language of redemption, transformation, and security. You saved me, I'll save you. The city will be safe, do not fear. Sansa can't help but see through the image as it blurs and burns around the edges. Try not to be afraid? How can she not be afraid right now? In Sansa's mind, her nightmares about the riot keep blurring into the daylight realities of the approaching battle. It's all one threat, one fire, one fear. Wherever she turns, someone is waiting to kill her, be they the people on the streets or the soldiers outside the walls. Dantos' appeal to courage seems absurd as does his fantasy about the gods smashing Stannis' fleet to save them. We are seeing the limits of hope. 
The material realities of Sansa's situation are bad. It looks like they're about to get worse, and there is nothing she can do about it. Dantos' tropes are useless and insulting. At every turn, she pokes holes in his projected fictions. Dantos says that Stannis can't cross without ships. Sansa points out that he has ships, more than Joffrey. Dantos says the gods sent him to help her. Sansa wonders what good are the gods to send such a flawed guardian. Sansa's beginning to wonder if he even intends to help her at all. What good are his promises if he can't back them up? They're worth no more than the songs and stories it turned out lied to her. Can she trust him? Danto says she's clever. And he's right. The problem is, again, that there's no way for Sansa to put her cleverness into useful action, which I don't think is a, you know, a plot hole. I think that's the point. When she tries, saying they could slip away now because no one's watching, Dantos reminds her the city gates are shut and locked. Tyrion isn't locked up in here with them. They are locked up in here with him, and he is not letting them go. Keeping your head down won't save you. No one is safe. In this purgatorial state, stranded on the lip of a volcano about to burst, Sansa contemplates letting go of it all and surrendering to the fire. Stannis has threatened to burn the Great Sept, as Dantos has heard, a radical transformation. The gods brought low, the order of nature inverted. It's not true, of course. <laughs> but Dantos is lying to Sansa the whole time. Even when he thinks he's telling her the truth, he's just passing on a lie. This is another shadow on a wall, another convenient fiction being deployed. And despite it, bring prop despite it being propaganda, it has an effect on Sansa, as stories have on us. Fiction cracks us open, revealing us. Same for Sansa here. Yet it has the opposite effect that Tyrion intended. Far from recoiling at the idea of the Great Sept defiled and destroyed, Sansa longs for it. The Great Sept is no longer sacred to her because it's where she had to watch her father die. It has already been defiled by Ned Stark's blood. If it is indeed the House of the Gods, then those gods are either neglectful or monstrous, and Sansa will not mourn their, their symbolic downfall. She only wishes it were literal, as shown by her plucking at the godswood trees, like, hmm, she might like mm. to burn them too. The, the image of the Sept burning is cathartic for Sansa because it reflects her own grief, despair, and submerged rage. It would make the Great Sept look the way it makes her feel. It, it would bring her internal and external worlds into cohesion, if only in destruction. It's her own inner fire burning. In part, this reflects Sansa's own unique journey in relationship to the stories and the songs. As she thinks, she used to think of the Great Sept as the heart of beauty and meaning, living proof that you could live inside the stories. Now the meaning of that story has changed to horror. And so she finds that beauty hypocritical, so false as to be practically intolerable for her. This is what it feels like to lose your religion, both literally and figuratively at the same time. Sansa is turning her back on what she used to believe. I mean, Sansa, the, the faith smasher, works as great setup for the next confrontation between her and Sansa Clegane. Because, as you're saying, Sansa may be losing her religion here, but she's not rejected the gods fully. She kind of strikes me as angry that the world is the way that it is with... And if the gods were watching and doing nothing, what good were the gods anyways? And she has every right to be angry at the world and at the unlistening gods. But the truth is that Sansa, like George, like Sander, is not actually as nihilistic as she comes off here in this part of the chapter. She's just a disappointed romantic, like George, like, 
like Sansa, like Sander. Because when we meet Sander in just a minute, Sansa switches to the Dantes role and becomes a defender of the gods. Like, you can't say that about religion and gods. I mean, they're listening up there. So what I'm saying is that there's a lot more nuance to this conversation, to that conversation we're going to cover here in a minute. And in this conversation as well, where she seems as Sansa, the, where she comes across as Sansa the Faith Smasher. And what Sansa is expressing reflects a deep-seated need that cuts across every character in The Song of Ice and Fire, and also, I would argue, every human being in real life. The desire to destroy that which reminds us of our mortality, our powerlessness before death, comes from many different places. You can credit it to evolution, or to spiritual decay, or to the cultural processes that warp our understanding of life and death, or all of them. We are all clocks counting down. And no one is good at dealing with that because we don't know what it actually means. As I was saying in our House of the Undying episodes, Danny always confronts the forces of time and death. She loses those confrontations, of course, because everyone does. I think when she sets the fires that burn the Great Sept and the rest, it will be in part out of despair that she simply cannot get back everything she lost. Sansa expresses that very same sentiment here, yet no one calls her mad for it because she can't act on it. In her next chapter, she joins the singers in a sept at the Red Keep, feeling herself swept up in the very community she's denying here. These desires don't define us, because every human experiences them. The Gregors and Ramses, the outright monsters, they, they do exist, but there's actually just not very many of them. Most monstrous actions come from the combination of fleeting thoughts like Sansa's with the power to put them into action. What if she had a dragon in this moment where she wanted the Great Sept's burn? She might say Dracarys, something she would never have considered a year previous and might be horrified by a year later, but in the moment, she might do it. As with the many faces of Dantos Hollard, George is showing us the full range of human expression. We have to think about it holistically. We are made to understand Sansa's wish for the Sept to burn, to connect it to Stannis' own furious desire to tear down the neglectful beauty of his brothers, and to see it fulfilled in Danny's need for home literally exploding. Oh, but we wouldn't carry out such dark <laughs> desires we tell ourselves as readers, and that's why it's bad. We have buried those desires so deeply because they frighten us so much. Dragons caged away in the darkness. Yet that only makes them more powerful when they rise. The return of the repressed, written in fire and blood. There but for the grace of God, go you and I. Sansa avoids acting on her dark desires, not out of goodness, but lack of power. And power can corrupt anyone. Mm, excellent point. And power can corrupt even the best of people. Daenerys, Sansa, John, and even those people with the best of intentions. For Sansa, she looks at all the things that thrilled her young romantic heart and feels sickened by it in this chapter. Here, it's Baylor Sept. Back in her first chapter, it was Joffrey and the Tourneys. Back in her first chapter in A Clash of Kings, where she thinks a blare of trumpets sounded, the king settled back in his seat and took Sansa's hand. Once that would have set her heart to pounding, but that was before he had answered her plea for mercy by presenting her with her father's head. The surface-level beauty of knights in shining armor, great buildings, noble handsome princes have all come crashing down around Sansa, and she reacts with impotent rage at her inability to tear down all the lies around her. 
Now, George has done a really good job, especially in The Clash of Kings, of talking about this idea that beautiful surfaces conceal hidden ugliness, as we talked about in our opening question. Renly was the handsome, charming king, but under the surface lay casual violence and usurpation of his brother's throne. Danny saw the undying as beautiful at first, but when she went through the door, the last door, the second to last door, she saw them as they truly were, barely breathing corpses. Jack Agar changes his face in front of Arya, assuming a different identity altogether. It's not his real face, however, that he changes into. That one remains unknown, but perhaps this is maybe something worth considering. It might be similar to the kindly man's corpse face from A Feast for Crows that Arya sees. Melisandre wears, glamour, wears a glamour that retains her red beauty, but underneath is a woman who is, quote, hundreds of years old, according to George R.R. R. Martin. And now Sansa is seeing under the face of Baylor Sept and the Red Keep. The beautiful buildings of the realm on the surface, but the blood of her father's men at the Red Keep and the blood of her father himself at Baylor Sept have shown the true face under the skin. So it's stellar writing for all these thoughts to then come into contact with someone whose literal skin is exposed and who views his mission in life as to expose the ugly truth under the surface, both in description and in action. Mm, beautifully said, sir. That's ex- that's the perfect transition. Dantos's Dantos's ultimate message for Sansa underneath the lecherous booze swilling and rambling appeals to romanticism is to stay put, little girl. But Sansa is feeling that fiery itch under the skin, familiar to anyone whose freedoms have been suddenly and radically curtailed. She's allowed to wander the castle at will. So what? There's nowhere here she wants to be. Even her room, the closest thing to her own intimate space, is intolerable to her now. The walls are closing in, the war drawing nigh. Instead, she climbs to the top of the tower, like Bran before her. He discovered the dirty little secret of royal power. Sansa beholds the full unveiled armaments of that power, securing the Lannister coup. Everywhere she looks, she sees Tyrion's works, readying King's Landing to bear the brunt of Baratheon fury. Yet none of it makes her less fearful. Why is that? It's in part fear of Stannis and his army. But as George writes it, it's more the smoke in the air, the fires raging across the horizon, a cinematic master shot that Tyrion will mirror during the battle itself. It's a sickening spiritual dread, made all the worse by Sansa's desire for the flames to come and cleanse all her sorrow. She hates it and loves it. Is the enemy on the outside or the inside? This question applies to the personal struggles as much as the political ones, and they interweave. It is a sudden stab of pain within Sansa that almost gets her killed, her body betraying her. One of the fearful shadows springs to life in order to save her, the opposite of the murderous shadows in the Stormlands. It's Sandor, of course. Sansa begs Sandor to let her go. This moment echoes the moment in Book 1, in which she was about to go go all murder-suicide on Joffrey, until Sandor intervened like an agent of mercy, a knight out of the songs. Does Sansa want Sandor to let her go because she's frightened of him, as she says? Or does part of her want to fall, to end her suffering and fear. Sandor asks whether she wants to end up like Bran, or if she thinks she'd just be able to fly away. It's realism versus romanticism, the cycle of misery versus transcendence. Yet Bran is the winged wolf. He's disabled on one plane and all-powerful on another, a fusion of worlds, and in a literary sense, it's a fusion of tones. Sansa's story exists along a similar frontier. One foot in storybook romanticism and one foot in bitter, cynical power politics. That duality is embodied by Sandor, 
That frontier, as you were saying, runs right down the middle of his face, cutting his soul in two. He has lived this alienation. He is both Sansa's savior and a constant threat to her, challenging her perspective not only on him, but the multiple worldviews he represents. He will put himself between her and Stannis' army, but, you know, none of them ever get close enough to actually put a blade to her throat, and he does here, and will again. So Sansa doesn't know how to treat him, any more than she knew how to interpret Dantos' woven web of words. What kind of story is this, you can feel her trying to ask? What roles are we playing? Who am I to you? What do we owe to each other? Even as Sandor reminds Sansa that he saved her life during the King's Landing riot, it's in the same breath that he acknowledges that she still can't bear to look at him. For him, this is the proof of the failure of goodness. I acted like your perfect knightly guardian, I saved your life, and you still can't do me the most basic courtesy of eye contact. Because on the surface, I don't fit the image of the perfect knightly guardian. You're just another hypocrite. Sandor's alienation is certainly sympathetic given what started it. And no one before Sansa has even bothered to get this far with him, so his, you know, communication tools are a little rusty. But these mind games he plays with Sansa are cruel and unfair. The situation from which he saved her was a violent and terrifying one, and the means by which he saved her, you know, were violent and terrifying. (laughs) That's not going to be a happy memory, no matter how Sandor slices it. And his attitude toward her compounds her fear. As she thinks, what really makes her afraid isn't the burns. It's the pure anger in his eyes. There is no telling where that anger might be directed because he's not really in control of himself. Like wildfire, it goes where it will once you let it loose. It could hurt Sansa as easily as help her. Sansa can sense Sandor's pain at some level and connect it to her own. But her tools for doing so are broken pieces of a world he despises. When Sansa thanks him for saving her so heroically, he does not interpret it as her trying to cross that gap between them. Sandor is so used to the flavor of alienation that it's the only taste he can accept, rejecting all others. Instead, Sandor mocks her specific word choices. Don't call me brave. I wasn't brave. The rioters had no realistic chance against me and my sword. This is Sandor scraping away the surface hypocrisy of societal niceties, as he always does. What he fails to understand, or just refuses to understand, is that Sansa, unlike everyone else, is being sincere with him. She calls him brave not because he actually was brave, but because brave is the word. All her education and courtesies taught her to use to describe someone who was good to her. It's like how people, you know, in a more negative sense, it's like how people reflexively use coward to describe any military foe they particularly dislike, even if it's objectively an untrue description, or how people use unconstitutional to describe any law they hate, regardless of whether it is. We cloak ourselves in words. They stand in not only for their literal meanings, but also the web of associations and values behind them. That's a great point. And I think this is one of the few spots where Sansa voices her honest opinion in this chapter. So you're really right to highlight it. But the only reason Sansa says it is because it usually plays well with people who hear it in King's Landing at the court, so to speak. Or perhaps better word, it keeps her alive in said court. The problem is that Sanders zeroes in on the, quote, words to keep me alive part of why Sansa is telling him that he's brave rather than it being Sansa's honest opinion and statement. Because Sander has seen the way Sansa performs courtly virtue in King's Landing and knows it's a lie. And because how could it not be a lie that Sansa loves Joffrey with all her heart and considers her brother to be a traitor deserving of death? 
Cersei allows Sansa to lie through it all as part of her low cunning theater of she's running of having the sister of Rob Stark continue to openly call him a traitor. But Sander knows the truth behind those words. And I think I favor the fails to understand interpretation of Sansa rather than the refuse to understand interpretation. Sure. Moreover, Sansa continues to keep most of her honest thoughts to herself, even in this dialogue scene that she's having with Sander Clegane. It's all part of her forced interiority that I was that I was talking about earlier in this in the, our analysis. Not that she'd really want to tell Sander Clegane that he fears Gregor Clegane in the best of times, mind you. That seems like a really bad idea. Sansa's... Uh- you know, she's having difficulty understanding Sandor. His actions during the riot saving her, it lines up partially with her understanding of values, but only part way. The world around them does not support those values, because the people threatening Sansa were not conveniently overpowered supervillains like Stannis Baratheon, the stranger come to judge us with his red lightsaber. You know, if Sandor saved Sansa from him, that's obviously heroic, that's brave, because Sandor was risking his life. The problem is the people who were attacking Sansa were starving peasants, and so Sandor really didn't risk anything, deflating the heroism, and he's the one pointing that out. Sandor, in her eyes, keeps blurring the border between the world she used to know and the world she knows. To which does he belong, and to which should she belong? Really, this is the threshold between childhood and adulthood. In the world of her childhood, joy and death were at the opposing ends of the spectrum. Sandor argues that in the world of adulthood, they come together because the only joy is in killing people. And you may hate that little bird, but don't you dare deny it. As we will see with the Brotherhood in A Storm of Swords, what Sandor fears most is that there may, in fact, be reasons to live and love in even this hateful fallen world. If that's the case, then he missed out on the happier life he could have had. He can't do anything about what Gregor did to him, but he can do something about his own misery unless every inch of the entire world really is that awful. If that's the case, there's nothing Sandor can do. So all there is for him, all there can be for him, is the law of the sword. Might makes right, that's the way of things. Sandor insists that Lord Eddard Stark lied when he told Sansa he took no joy in killing. If Ned was telling the truth then it means Ned found something worth living for, despite being part of a system built on fire and blood. What Ned was living for is currently beyond Sandor. It's still a little beyond Sansa, and she's never going to be able to talk to him about it now. What Ned lived for was love. Love as it's experienced in adulthood. A beautiful, fragile dance with death. Ned lost his sister, but still loves her. Ned lost Robert in more ways than one, but still loved him. Ned was ready to put it all on the line for John. Sandor, of course, suffered far more physically than Ned ever did. And unlike Ned, Sandor was alone, horribly alone, in his mourning for the world he lost. The decision to abandon any link to life and love, however, was still Sandor's to make. And he has suffered for the decision he made. He can't even accept Sansa's gratitude. He has to deconstruct even the simple act of thanking him, because that's too much decency for him to bear. There is an absurdity to this, not dissimilar to the literal folly of Dantos' performance. It's like the same self-deception, but with the tone flipped. Dantos told Sansa to hold on to hope. Sandor shreds that hope, telling Sansa that strong arms and steel swords run this world. Beneath the projection and over-the-top gruffness, 
There is a real thesis statement to Sandor's argument, and it's the same as Jamie's argument to Catalan a few chapters from now. It is impossible to be a good person. If you embrace violence, you destroy yourself along with others. If you reject violence, you die for it and can do no good to anyone anymore. Even diagnosing the problem does us no good because we've heaped far too much power and psychology on top of it to erase it. Awareness of our original sin does not deliver us. It makes it clear that we are forsaken. Sandor says that Eddard Stark had all the societal niceties on his side and yet died all the same. Why? Because knights are for killing. The societal niceties pretend otherwise so everyone doesn't have to go around as depressed as Sandor Clegane, but they all know it deep down. It is again the precise inverse of Dantos' argument. He said the key to survival was to keep your head down and stay out of the way. Only those who pop their heads up attract the lethal attention of the powerful. Sandor says that Dantos' path leads only to submissive death, because any expression of humanity will expose you to the lethal attention of the powerful. It happened to him. All you can do is be ready to fight back when that happens. This extends beyond political power to the magical and religious side of things. If there are gods, Sandor says, they made things this way. They made Tyrion a dwarf in a world that hates him for it, and same goes for Lala Stokeworth. Why should Sandor fear the gods and their judgment when they're just cosmic versions of Gregor and Joffrey? The only hell is this one, kid. Because Sandor has seen through the lies, he can burn through societal niceties, using the only truth, that of the sword, to kill every kind of person, up and down, the ladder of society. He, and he alone, is not afraid. Ah, but is he actually truly not afraid? Tune in for the Battle of the Blackwater to find more about that. It's also interesting how the subject of lollies comes up in Sansa's conversation with both Dantos and Sander. According to Dantos, everyone plays their Game of Thrones, but with lollies, it's different. They all watch each other keen as hawks and pay this one and that one to spy out what the other is doing, but no one ever troubles themselves about Lady Tanda's daughter, do they? So to Dantos, Lala's is safe because she's seen as a lackwood and left alone by the nobles who prefer to conspire against each other rather than focus on her. But to Sander, he sees lollies in disturbingly different terms. Tell me, little bird, what kind of god makes a monster like the imp or a half-wit like Lady Tanda's daughter? If there are gods, they made sheep so wolves could eat mutton, and, ma- and they made the weak for the strong to play with. Lollies is meat for the strong to play with in Sanders' mindset. So which perspective is the correct one? Terrifyingly, it's both. You know, in one of Jorah's two, maybe three fine moments in the story, he tells Daenerys that the small folk just want to be left alone. But that's not the implication with Lollies here. Here are the implications that no one cares about lollies because of her mental impairment. They have more important things to do than care about lollies when there are more important matters of state to worry about. I mean, remember that awful scene from the Riot in King's Landing when Lady Tanda is shrieking for lollies and everyone ignores her and wonders about Joffrey, Cersei, Santa Clegane, Sansa, Preston Jake, Preston, <laughs> Preston ah. Greenfield, and the High Septon. Yikes. Is it preferable to be ignored then? No, probably not. Meanwhile, Sanders' perspective is proof that God don't reel because then why is there human suffering? But anyways, now that she exists, she could be preyed upon by the strong. Lollies' treatment by the High Lords is awful in and of itself, and I think it stands in for how the High Lords treat the small folk in the Game of Thrones. Ignore them since they're inconvenient, prey upon them when they need their blood, property, or sweat. On the inside, Sansa immediately punctures Sandor's philosophy. Sandor is afraid of Gregor, she knows full well. 
Gregor is the embodiment of rapacious power that took notice of young innocent Sandor when he dared express his humanity. Sandor is also afraid of fire, which Stannis is bringing across the river with him in great quantities. Sandor says he's prepared to die in that battle, dodging any weakness that might crack him open to genuine empathy for Sansa. Sandor's social critique has teeth. The flaw in his argument is his refusal to admit his own vulnerability and culpability, and the two are linked. Sandor will be as violent as it takes to never be helpless again. No one will ever be able to put him in that position because he's the hound and the hound can kill anyone. In the process, he has become that which he hates, an avatar of unthinking, unreasoning violence looming over innocent, story-loving children like he used to be. Sansa forces him into a complicated corner. Part of Sandor wants to shield her from the world. Part of him wants to beat the world into her. He can't separate the violence he has learned from the romanticism shattered by that violence. He sees both in Sansa's story. She offers him hope. She enrages him. She terrifies him. He needs to save her, but he also needs to doom her to make her just like him. Is Sansa his ladder up to heaven? Or is Sandor her ladder down to hell? He can't even decide what he wants, let alone what to do about it. All of which makes it impossible for Sansa to entirely embrace or reject him. And I think George wanted the reader to end up in the same place. On one hand, Sandor encourages Sansa to look beyond him to the system at work. I'm not awful. I'm an honest reflection of an awful world. That is an important part of Sansa's development as both a politician and a person. It's not all about good and bad individuals. Far more often, it's about individuals crushed in different ways by larger forces around them. On the other hand, Sandor is neatly excusing any responsibility he might have for ameliorating suffering, even just between himself and Sansa. If the world is as bad as Sandor says it is, then all we have is each other. Rejecting that bridge is immaturity, not wisdom, and Sandor gradually, painfully struggles towards the realization that what he does still matters. So Sansa is caught in between in terms of how to think about Sandor. Part of her thinks of him as an angry dog, growling at any kindness. But another part of her wishes Dantos had his ferocity. They each showed her half the world, half the story, so both of them seem incomplete to her. Sansa retains her queasy fascination with the Hound because of this liminal in-between status. She recalls him saving her during the riot, a moment in which his face transformed, and I love that George cuts it off there. We don't know if Sandor looked handsome or happy or relieved of fear. All we know is that for a moment, he looked different. There was the possibility of something else, a hint of life amidst all this death. That's what draws Sansa on in her own life. And it's a key part of the complex and turbulent empathy growing between herself and Sandor. When she's talking to Dantos, she makes Sandor's argument. When she's talking to Sandor, she makes Dantos's argument. Somewhere in there is the truth. Agreed. I mean, Dantos Heller and Sandor Clegane represent two extremes. It's shrinking obsequious to power versus furious rage at the system. It's... Iron, it's ice and fire, fire and ice. When Sansa talks about wishing that Dantos had some of Sanders' ferocity, she's asking that her own narrative reflect the chivalric story she grew up around. 
Brian Redwine, Servant of the Mirror Shield, Amon the Dragon Knight, they represented the pinnacle of chivalry. They protected the weak, the innocent women from the horrors of the world around them. But they used their knightly training to do so. Think about Loras Terrell. Loras Terrell's hand was the one which offered her a flower at the hand's tourney. That was also the same hand that held a lance that brought down the mountain in that hand's tourney. Sander, though, has a quite different perspective. To him, chivalry is a pretty ribbon tied around a sword that inflicts violence on the world. In other words, it's a perfume to cover up a horrible smell. Knights are killers, and Sansa better get on the same page as him. But there's an even deeper layer, as you were pointing out. Sander, the boy, he loved his toy knights and loved the same chivalric stories that Sansa loved and continues to love, as she points out in his conversation with, with Sander. And that was all brought to a sudden horrifying end for Sander by Gregor Clegane. And Sander wants Sansa to see the truth in reality because her stories came to a sudden horrifying end when her father was murdered on the steps of Baylor's Sept. The thing is, is that like Sansa and her feelings regarding the gods, it's much more complicated for Sander Clegane. And that complication will be felt most strongly when Sander Clegane comes to Sansa's room demanding the song she promised him at threat to her life. Because of course he's holding a sword to her throat again. But after Sansa sings Gentle Mother, Font of Mercy, the reader may expect another snarling mockery of Sansa's belief, or God forbid, Sander to run Sansa through with this sword. Instead, Sander weeps. He weeps at what he's become, and he weeps for the boy he was, not the man that he is. Mm, really well said, and that, that draws so perfectly and completely from this scene. So that night, after her conversations with her Nada Knights, Sansa dreams of the riot again. Her assailants are an inhuman swarm, as Theon saw the people of Winterfell. Sansa cries out for all the heroes of the songs she loved to save her. She cries out for Dantos, Loras, Lady, Ned, to no avail. Seems that Sandor was right, and the world is awful. Dantos was wrong, keeping her head down didn't help Sansa. It isn't even rapacious men attacking her in the dream, but other women betraying her, like Cersei. They plunge the knife into her and cut her into ribbons... And then Sansa wakes up, feeling sick and achy, to find that the blood is real. For a sickening moment, it's as if the dream world has stepped into the light of day. The fear of violence bubbling just under the surface for Sansa has erupted, as it did in the riot, as it will soon in the Battle of Blackwater. Yet understanding what has actually happened does not bring Sansa any comfort. If anything, it's worse. George does such a good job of capturing Sansa's frantic state of mind, repeating, not now, no less than five times. As I've been saying throughout this episode, the enemy is within, as well as without. The call is coming from inside the house. This dynamic applies to the personal, physical struggles, every bit as much as the collective, political struggles. Just as Tyrion lights fires on this side of the river to match Stannis' banner on the other side, Sansa's fear of external violence is ironically realized by blood coming from inside her. George emphasizes this parallel by having Sansa compare her menstrual blood to a banner of Lannister crimson, her own body betraying her, like the women who attacked her in her dream. The concept of woman, a role Sansa has been preparing for her whole life, has become her enemy. What a perfect way of capturing Sansa's alienation. The natural maturation of her body has been weaponized by the political context. Hmm. Sansa knows that now that she is menstruating, she can be wed to Joffrey and forced into bed with him. Hence the blood resembling Lannister crimson to her. It is the mechanism by which she will be made a Lannister. Yeah, and this also reads as Sansa looking at a natural occurrence and giving meaning to it. And this is similar to how everyone is staring up at the great comet in the sky early in A Clash of Kings and believing it to mean Tully Victory, Lancer Crimson, the red god unfurling his banner across the sky. 
But the comet and menstruation are naturally occurring phenomena. Do they actually mean something? Well, yeah, they do. This is a story, guys. The comet does appear to herald a change in the world in the form of the birth of the dragons. And for Sansa, her first period is her body's entry into adulthood, mirroring how psychologically Sansa has not so much shed childish things as had them ripped away from her, much as the dream emphasizes the ripping away and stuff like that. Terrible stuff. And yet the comet and Sansa's menstruation are natural, common. But that doesn't strip away the meaning characters embed into these natural, common phenomena. Yeah, that's a perfect way of looking at it, where, of course, it's just this was always going to happen to Sansa, but she brings everything to the table that's happened along the way. Menstruating for the first time is an inherently stressful experience, even in the best of circumstances. Contemplating marrying Joffrey was an inherently stressful experience, even when it remained hypothetical. Now Sansa has to deal with the stress of battle, imprisonment, menstruation, and the prospect of marrying her abuser all at the same time. So naturally, she freaks the fuck out. Who wouldn't? She cuts through her sheets and then attempts to burn her entire mattress, all to hide her blood. Rationally, of course, this makes no sense. Even if she was able to burn her entire mattress, it would be clear why she had done it. And even if it wasn't, there's no hiding the menstrual blood itself once the flow resumes. Sansa just doesn't have any privacy. But Sansa isn't thinking rationally. She's all alone in the world, more than ever, and desperate for an escape from her situation and her own self. Obviously, George cannot draw from personal experience here, and neither can either of us. <laughs> Nevertheless, I think George does a good job of grounding us in Sansa's head. I think it was wise of him to emphasize not the specifically gendered aspects that are foreign to him. I think he does a good job with it, but doesn't linger. He lingers instead in the sense of political desperation, the need to avoid an even worse form of imprisonment. As with her desire to see the Great Sept in flames, Sansa is literally trying to burn down a world that lied to her about its true nature and her true nature. That's something that I think any reader can understand, whether we have menstruated or not. An act of empathy, like between Sansa and Sandor. Yeah, and we empathize, empathize with Sansa too in this moment because, as you were saying, it's not only a terrifying moment for her physically, it also signals something far worse. She could be coerced into wedding and bedding Joffrey. Fortunately, of course, the Tyrells arrive just in time to save Sansa from the fate of having to marry Joffrey and have sex with him, right? Not so much, as Dantas tells Sansa at the end of A Clash of Kings. The queen will never let you go, never. You are too valuable a hostage. And Joffrey, sweetling, he is still the king. If he wants you in his bed, he will have you. Only now will be bastards he plants in your womb instead of true-born sons. So this part of the chapter, as well as the rest of Sansa's arc, is emphasizing that Sansa is trapped in a living nightmare created by a patriarchal society which values Sansa only in her ability to produce an heir if she's the king's consort, or only value her as a sex object to be used or not used by powerful men with or without her consent because they can, because they're powerful, because the patriarchy in Westeros sucks. And yet Sansa does not meet a man afterwards to reinforce his patriarchy upon her, but a woman who has made her own kind of deal with the devil with that kind of power structure in Westeros. After Sansa calms down and is given new clothes to wear, she is dispatched to see Cersei, who has the responsibility of dealing with this. Why is that? Why not send Sansa to, say, Tyrion? In part, it's because of gender. Cersei has been through menstruation herself, and so she can offer more empathy and information than someone who has not. Menstruation is women's work. It's the obligation of the mother to explain it to the daughter. But Sansa is separated from her mother, so Cersei must fill in. She alludes to this surrogate mother role when she tells Sansa that Catelyn ought to have prepared her for menstruation, and now I have to do it. Cersei, however, also has the responsibility of addressing Sansa's menstruation because she is queen regent, and Sansa is betrothed to her son, 
the king. So this is both a personal and political conversation. Those two dynamics contradict each other. Even if Cersei personally held Sansa's best interests at heart, which she very much does not, she is ultimately here to assess Sansa's status as potential broodmare to her son. She cannot truly offer comfort to Sansa even if she felt like it, no more than Tyrion can, because no matter if they play good cop or bad cop, they're still keeping Sansa trapped in this nightmare scenario. Cersei, too, is an enemy calling from inside the house, and she brings up the inside-outside dynamic of this chapter right away to Sansa. Cersei displays some tasty, tempting food, and then admits that it all tastes like ash, thanks to both Stannis and Tyrion's fires. The stuff of life, the rewards of power, have been corrupted by the furious forces of the war. The god of fire and blood is already inside the walls, inside the food, inside Sansa's own body, frightening her like the fires looming outside. As Cersei says, this fear has led Sansa to start her own fire. At every level of society, from the intimacy of puberty to the intricacy of the Game of Thrones, Everyone is ultimately trying to burn the whole damn thing down. (laughs) The conscious strategies are giving way to transformative impulses seeping up from under deep tectonic layers, and the two are intermixing. You can see that in how Cersei handles Sansa, a poisonous valentine approach that anticipates the rose thorns of the Tyrells, if more bluntly. On one level, Cersei is still acting like the good queen who so enchanted Sansa back in book one. The forms of courtesy are observed. Cersei offers Sansa both food and advice, even complimenting her strength at one point, like you said. One can imagine that this is how Cersei would handle Marcella's first period. Not exactly warm, but a steady, practical handle on the situation. On another level, though, this isn't a conversation about Sansa at all. Rather, it is a conversation about Joffrey. Sansa leaves him out of her explanation for why she started the fire, for why she was so afraid. She's trying to keep her performance going, in which she loves Joffrey, the lady's face already dissolving into tears at the start of the chapter. Cersei sees through it, knowing that face so well herself. It's remarkable to observe how coolly she condemns Sansa to a lifetime of abuse even worse than that which she suffered at Robert's hands. She connects the violence Joffrey inflicts on Sansa to the pain she suffered giving birth to him, a comparison most revealing for her character. For Cersei, the role of woman that Sansa is so viscerally confronting is a gauntlet of humiliation that she has uniquely mastered as the world's best woman. She sees herself reflected in Sansa and says so. I survived, and so will you. But remember, she later plans to kill Sansa at the Battle of Blackwater. The seed of empathy withers in Cersei's psychological soil because all she's got in there is paranoia and resentment that she's still not really in charge. Sansa must suffer for the pain inflicted upon Cersei in childbirth. Joffrey hurt me coming into the world, and so you're next in line to take his blows. George still does unearth pathos in Cersei, reminding us that she has been abandoned by Robert, and indeed every man but Jaime. She hates men for having power and other women for not having power. There is no relationship to power that can satisfy Cersei, which is a problem because power is pretty much the only thing she cares about. Sansa confesses that she thought this part of her life would be magical, not so messy. Well, it is the messiness of life that molded Cersei. 
As at the Battle of Blackwater, you can sense Cersei relishing the opportunity to say what she thinks with Sansa as a captive audience. Sansa has no such luxury and must maintain her mask like Dantos and Sandor at court playing their opposing roles. She claims to love Joffrey. Cersei tells her that uh, she's going to have to learn some new lies for Stannis. Stannis is an ambiguous figure for Sansa. Is he coming to liberate her, or will she just have to learn a new set of lies to appease the new boss? Sansa passes on the performative mantra of the new High Septon. Stannis will lose the battle because Joffrey is Robert's true heir. (laughs) Cersei smiles, thinking of the truth and of the success of Lannister propaganda. But then she shares something intimate with Sansa. Joffrey cried when Robert picked him up. I mean, so what? Babies cry. But it's hard for Cersei not to read into it, like the comet or Sansa and her period. It felt to her like a rejection, a recognition that Robert was not in fact Joffrey's father. This was her revenge on Robert, on the life she had to live, the life she says Sansa will now have to live. So Robert went to where he was loved, friends, brothels, and bastards. Cersei calls that a disease and diagnoses Tyrion with the same affliction. What about Sansa? As she stands on the threshold of fire and blood, entering adulthood in a world at war, does she want to be loved? Sansa says that everyone wants to be loved. It's a universal truth, shining naively from her cherished stories and songs, filtered now through the desperate adult need for connection, the lack of which produced Dantos, Sandor, and Cersei as they currently exist. This is what Sansa takes away, a pearl of wisdom forged by the forces grinding away all around her. Everyone wants to be loved. This is beyond Cersei's grasp. She rejects it as childish, like an overly cynical reader might do. She offers a counter-argument. Love is but the sweetest of poisons. This, too, is a poetic idea with ancient roots. Love is the noblest of passions, but is not immune to the corruption threatening all passions. Passion is life, and so is the counterforce to death. Each passion loses its battle against the Grim Reaper in its own unique way, becoming part of death. Love, as Cersei argues, joins forces with death, by becoming poison. Love has poisoned Tyrion, in her telling, like it poisoned Robert. They couldn't get what they wanted, and the depth of their need invalidated the rest of their lives in their eyes. Cersei is making a similar argument to Sandor. There is no way to resolve the human heart in conflict with itself. Love is death, and alienation is life. And just as Sandor kind of got around his own vulnerability and culpability in the cycle of violence, Cersei is only pretending to be immune to love's poison. She said earlier in this conversation that she loves Joffrey in spite of everything, and that Sansa will love Joffrey's children in spite of him. Is that not a poison that will bring her low? Does Cersei herself not suffer greatly because of her paranoid, possessive love of her children? Cersei wants to set her heart on fire, like Stannis' banner, another way in which the two opposing sides of the Battle of Blackwater come together. In both cases, not only is purging humanity objectionable in its own right, it doesn't even achieve their stated goals. Stannis is more sorrowful than ever now, and Cersei winds up clinging to the tether of her children too tightly. Even Jaime will walk away from her, and no matter how much she denies it, living this way has made Cersei miserable, along with everyone around her. She projects it all onto Sansa, because like Sandor, to see the glimpse of another way terrifies her. She turns on Sansa like the women in her dream. 
Cersei is not wrong that love hurts, just like Sandor is not wrong that the world runs on fire and blood, but they have drawn the wrong conclusions. Sansa gradually reaches the right one, to live for love without shame, and to govern with that principle in mind. It's her only escape from the fire. It absolutely is. And I mean, Cersei's closing statement about how love is poison, that must have seen the vantage point by which George used to to write Cersei's chapters in A Feast for Crows, because in those chapters, Cersei repeatedly pushes aside the love of the commons, makes fun of Marjorie for her attempts to win the love of the common folk, and always reminds herself to show no fear, to maximize the fear in others and rule as Ice Queen. The Stannis parallels are quite clear, as you were saying. Ultimately, Cersei and Stannis forget the full extent of Machiavelli's wisdom about love and fear. It is much safer to be feared than love because love is preserved by the link of obligation, which owing to the baseness of men is broken at every opportunity for their advantage. But fear preserves you by a dread of punishment, which never fails. Moreover, in the broader context, chapters 15 through 17 of the prince, their exhortations to the prince not to indulge in either too much love or too much cruelty. Or to put it in a Song of Ice and Fire, in a Song of Ice and Fire context, don't be Titus Lannister and don't be Tywin Lannister either. You got to be Ned Stark, and that's where I think Sansa's story is ultimately heading, thematically back to Winterfell and back to her father and the way that he ruled the North and Winterfell. I totally agree. And to head into foreshadowing and groundwork, before Sansa can get back to the North, she has to get out of King's Landing. And Dantos's quote-unquote good friend, who will spirit Sansa out of King's Landing, is Littlefinger as we learn in A Storm of Swords. George does give us a hint here when Danto says his friend isn't in the city right now. And if, you know, if you're a first-time reader paying exceptional attention, you might go, wait a minute, the only power player who could really help Sansa out who isn't in the city right now is Littlefinger. But I think George knows the first-time reader is not paying that much attention. And he's just, he's just showing he's playing fair with us by dropping these hints. Right, and I think it's such, it's such a kind of a interesting revelation when it occurs in A Storm of Swords because you're like, who could it possibly be? And you're like, oh, it's Littlefinger? God, fuck. But I think, um, you know, it, it's good because I think, like, it brings it up again at the end of A Clash of Kings in Sansa's chapter. He says, my friend has returned to the city and we will get you out very, very soon. It'll be a Joffrey's feast day, which is going to be coming up very, very, very soon when his feast for uh, with Marjorie Sorrell. And that's when it's actually going to occur. That's when my friend will get you out of King's Landing. So, yeah, it's all good stuff. Uh, Dato says that Sansa's men cannot cross the Blackwater without ships, which, okay, how about if the army crosses the river atop a burning bridge of ships during the battle instead? Seems to me like George was foreshadowing what's going to happen here with the, the bridge of ships serving as the actual bridge by which Stannis' men do cross the south into north portion of the Battle of the Blackwater, south and north portion of the Blackwater, in order to start ramming the Mudgate in King's Landing. It becomes hilariously literal, you know, the bridge of ships, not even just the poetic sense of we're taking men across, but no, literally, we're using you as a bridge. <laughs> right. that, is, that is a truly epic moment of the battle. Mm-hmm. So the gods seem to answer Dandos' prayer to send a storm after Stannis' fleet, as we learn in Davos 3. It's not enough to destroy the fleet, as Dantos hopes, but it slows the ships down long enough for Tywin and the Tyrells to triumph over Stannis at the Battle of Blackwater. Because as we've said before, and we'll say again, Stannis just barely loses that battle. If any one of a number of things goes differently in the lead-up to it, it would have a totally different outcome. Like, George is very, very interested in, in displaying the full fury of, of wildfire at the Battle of the Blackwater. And so he's sowing a lot of the, the seeds for that to occur here in these chapters. Uh, sub 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 Subtextually here, and then also like more when Tyrion's chapters where he's always alluding to it, but never actually like getting into what the wildfire is actually going to be used for besides to hurl at Stannis' ships. Instead, he has a much uh, more 
fiery purpose in store for it. Finally, fires, fires everywhere is what Sansa sees when she climbs the steps to Mager's hold fast. And this is the exact, I looked this up, this is the exact wording that George uses again in Quentin's second A Dance with Dragons, A Dance with Dragons chapter, The Windblown, as Quentin Martell reflects back on the Battle of Astapor and remembers the brutality of the slaughter, summing it up as fires, fires everywhere. It's a real Holocaust vibe there from In A Dance with Dragons. I want to say that George was basing it in part on that historical event, but also sourcing it back to the Sansa chapter from A Clash of Kings. Quentin's story in A Dance with Dragons, one of the reasons I love it is because it feels almost like a greatest hits work by George, where he's kind of like recycling all the, the images and themes that he thinks were most successful in the previous books and expressing it all in one kind of compact story. And so that echo works perfectly that, you know, the, the black water is, of course, the apex of George's fiery destruction imagery. So when he wants to recapture that in Quentin's story, he's like, yep, fire's everywhere. Bring it back. My greatest hits. It's my, my radio edit of Sweet Child of Mine. Here it is. That's <laughs> uh, so good. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So moving on into our theory slash discussion portion of the episode, I was curious how a, a hypothetical Lord Jeff Hartline Esquire might run the battle from the Lannister side of things. Now, obviously, oh, if you were in the battle, you'd be on the Baratheon side. We all know that, and we can talk some about that in Davos 3. But I'm curious, if you were on on this side of the river, would you be doing what Tyrion is doing? Are there things you'd be doing differently? I think there's 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 a lot of what Tyrion is doing just tactically that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, he is, I, as much as we, like, castigated Tyrion correctly, in my opinion, for burning down that the suburbs of King's Landing before that there that is an easy entry point into the city of King's Landing so they did have to clear that out but again Tyrion fails because he fails to bring the small folk into the red keep or to provide them shelter in some other way and has been fearing them in, in the long term so i i think that that's actually a good a good a good thing that Tyrion does at least tactically sound i, I am curious like there's a, there's a part of the chapter here where like they're sending the galleys up and down the river to shoot arrows at Stannis' men. I'm just really not sure what the purpose of that was. Um, it just seems like kind of a waste of, of military resources. In my opinion, I think you probably want to preserve your ships because you're preparing for the, the Blackwater itself and to uh, explode Stannis' army as, as it sails into the Blackwater Bay and then, of course, trap them in, with the chain itself. I mean, honestly, much of what Tyrion does in A Clash of Kings tactically is a pretty smart and probably what I would do as, you know, an esteemed person who has never held command beyond company command level, only about 100 soldiers. So, um, but which is all good. Um, I, I think there's there's other aspects about this the strategy, which do kind of like strike me as a little like strange. Like, I, I'm not sure why they have the soldiers moving up and down the walls at this point. I mean, are, are they demonstrating like their, their numbers in some ways? Is Tyrion attempting to sh- demonstrate that he has more, he's trying to show Stance that he has more soldiers than he actually has by having people run up and down the walls at all points during the time of this battle. That's unclear to me. I think that the Lannisters, but ultimately it comes down to that the Lannisters have the advantage in, in, in defense. And they have the, the, the advantage too in having the high walls of King's Landing, which allows for an uh, easy defense against a, a large army. So again, it's almost kind of amazing to kind of like make Frank happy. It's almost kind of amazing that Stannis almost wins the battle altogether before, of course, he doesn't win the battle as we get to at the end of the Battle of the Blackwater. But I, I think, by and large, Tyrion is a pretty decent job uh, uh, from the Lannister side. I've got a lot of stuff to say about the Baratheon side when we get to Davos 3 and sure. how, how Stannis 
really fucked up that battle, the battle planning for it, especially in a selection of leadership. But I think that Tyrion does a, a good job with a, with a bad hand. So that, that's ultimately my assessment. I know it's not like super tactical, but as we're getting into the battle itself, it, it really reads that it's just supposed to be a hold Stannis' army south of the Blackwater Rush, explode his fleet as they're coming in there and then trap the fleet there. And then that will, will not allow Stannis to cross the Battle of the Blackwater unless they traverse all the way around King's Landing, which of course puts them in danger of Tywin's army, which is coming for them anyway. So yeah, I, I think the, uh, the the defense is obviously advantageous to, to the Lannisters itself. They've got King's Landing as a good force multiplier, and Tyrion does a pretty good job with the hand he's dealt. What do you think, sir? Yeah, you, you make great points, and I was just thinking, is it, would it be fair to say that, uh, that Stannis makes worse moves before the battle and Tyrion makes smarter moves during the battle and that's really yeah. what determines the outcome more than any decisions they make during the battle. Agreed. I, I think, think that's like Tyrion. Yeah. Yeah, Tyrion's doing a really good job of preparping the battle. I mean, the other thing that's brought up as well is that he's got the trebuchets that are sitting right by the mud gate. And I think that's that's smart because that's demonstrating that Tyrion is putting his most casually producing weapons at the point where he's potentially expecting Stannis to cross. Hmm. And so he's utilizing them there as well as placing his, his men there as well. Uh, again, like you, when you when you talk about like the the tactics, it's, Tyrion does a bang up job of doing the the pre planning for the battle much better than Stannis does. And you know, as we talk about Davos too, like Stannis sits in, in Storm's End for weeks, right? It's literal weeks that Stannis is is there, which allows all of the timing to happen for for the battle to take place, uh, which allows the Tyrells and the, and the Lannisters to align and then come riding for Stannis when he could have just left a force to. Keep the keep the castle entrusted in siege, and then moved on to to King's Landing with the with most of his army, and that might have allowed for an actual victory. Because again, as em- emphasized before, Stannis basically won the battle until he didn't win the battle. Tyrion's last charge against Stannis's line was defeated by Stannis Baratheon and his men there, and it was only when Tywin and the Tyrells arrived that it actually uh, went all to shit for Stannis. Well, Frank was saying in the chat, we got to keep Frank happy, of course. That, uh, <laughs> always, always. Uh, that a lot of what the Lannisters might be doing here is just keeping up appearances and acting like there's not a trap. Because if Stannis yeah. gets there and he's like, "What? They haven't been shooting arrows. They're not on the walls. True. Something's going on here. What's with that tower they're building over there?" Because Tyrion really right. has to de- deflect attention away from that tower and make sure no one thinks it's important. So maybe this is just part of that strategy. I mean, that winch tower, man. Like when we talk about, when we get to Davos three. Like there's a winch tower that's in the south bank of the Blackwater, which Stannis doesn't seize which allows the, the chain to be raised up. And Stannis has the easy ability to seize that winch tower, but he doesn't. And that basically just throws the entire battle basically for him. Because at, at that point, the, the fleet would have been half destroyed by the wildfire, but they still would not have had the mass amount of casualties that they suffered there. So, yeah, I, that, it's going to be a lot more interesting when we talk about like the Baratheon side because, they, man, they fuck this battle up at five <laughs> ways from Sunday. And it's sure. so sad. Well, I mean, so sad for for you know the Stannerman among us amongst fans, but uh, they could have done a lot. They could have done a lot better, and I think Tyrion and the Lancers do a, do a really good job here. But of course, we also have to consider that the there's lots of innocents that are within King's Landing too. And as we were talking about our, our pre discussion chat, you know, Sansa's a really great point of view for this battle because. You know, she kind of reflects the reader's sympathies, right? She's like sort of sympathetic to Stannis here, mm-hmm. right? She's sort of at the place where she's like, yeah, it'd be really good if, if you know, Joffrey dies because of Stannis is here. But at the same time, she also recognizes what's going to happen when the city is taken. Then even if Stannis Baratheon, who is 
you know, gives orders that there are no rapes or murders and stuff like that. The shit's going to happen anyways in, in the battle. It happened before with Tywin Lannister open, when he walked through, this, through the open gates of King's Landing. It's going to happen much more when the blood is high and, and up on these men. So Sansa is like a great like reader point of view for the Battle of the Blackwater. Because, you know, for, for first-time readers, especially me when I was reading it for the first time, I really didn't know who to root for. I mean, again, I watched season two, episode nine, Blackwater before I had read the books. But when that battle happened, I was like, this is really great because this is like the first time as I'm watching a battle where I'm like, yeah, I really want, don't know who to root for in this battle, you know, because you're rooting for, you have, you have a side that you're rooting for. It's because I'm like, they got Stannis has Davos, but the Lancers have Tyrion, but the Lancers have, you know, Joffrey fucking sucks. And then, but they got also Stannis on the Baratheon side and he kind of fucking sucks too in the show. And it was only later that I, you know, read the books and got a, got a stronger perspective on it. So, yeah, it's all good stuff. Yeah, and obviously those, you know, Sansa's engagement with these issues is going to get more and more fraught and dramatic as we go through the Battle of Blackwater. And it will climax with a moment involving both, both her Nata Knights and the kind of collapse of Cersei. So all these all these characters hmm. in Sansa will, will occur in much more dramatic fashion as we approach the Battle of Blackwater. It's not far away now, folks. I think we're within a month of it actually doing Heck it for yeah. the Nauticast podcast. Cannot wait. So I think that about wraps us up for A Clash of Kings Sansa 4. As always, thank you so much to everyone for listening. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean. Of course, hit the thumbs up button if you're watching on a live stream on YouTube and subscribe to us as well. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjakut, Alchemist of Set San Quanta, Mage of the Arts, Bool and De Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Merrifull, Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Donatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrinkler of Ice- Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, Caretaker at the End of the Crossroads, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, and Lady Carly. Thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you so much to all of your support every single month. We really highly appreciate it. So join us next week for A Clash of Kings, John 7, in which Jon Snow gets some practical education from Corn Halfhand and some weird-ass education from his brother Bran. Yeah, he's in there. And sorry to say, but for next week, we will not be live streaming for John 7. But it's for good reason, as we'll be joined by a brand new guest. Stefan Sasse of the famed Boiled Leather Audio Hour. Oh man, I cannot wait. I don't, I don't know about you, but like 
Boil the Audio is, I think, with the first podcast, Song of Ice and Fire podcast I listened to, like in 2012, I want to say. Same here. It's the OG in a lot of ways. And Stefan has done some great foundational theory work, like Southrun Ambitions and stuff. So we're so happy to have him on for another great John chapter. But yes, and Stefan lives in the, the crazy fairy tale kingdom of Europe uh, <laughs> with their incorrect un American time. Uh, it's not going to uh. work out quite properly to do our usual uh, live stream. So that's going to be just kind of a normal episode where we just record it and put it out to you in audio form. You know, like like peasants who can imagine such a thing. I know, but we're, we'll be right back to to, to live streaming right after that with Tyrion Twelve. But I think well, you're going to really enjoy this this John episode anyway. Absolutely. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons again for supporting us, and we will see you all in two weeks. But you'll be listening to us next week.